I would encourage you to uh, take your copy of the scriptural text, either the one that you brought with you to the facility today or the one that's in the pew rack in front of you, and turn it to the passage, the first lesson that Ben read a few moments ago from Paul's epistle, his first epistle to the Corinthians. We're continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, picking up at chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 5 today of that same chapter. If you're new to this series, let me just uh, briefly summarize where we've been and what we've seen so far in this letter. Paul's letter to the Corinthian Christians is a letter to a church that is troubled and plagued by all sorts of issues and problems. Some of the issues the church is already aware of and dealing with, others of the issues, uh, apparently they aren't aware of those particular issues. They're not aware partly because of their immaturity and partly because they've been led astray by some unhelpful teaching and some unwise uh, church leaders. And already in the first four chapters, we've seen Paul address uh, some of these issues. The primary issue that he's addressed in the first four chapters has to do with the problem of division. And he talks about the need for unity in the church to put away all discord and and division, which has caused a, a number of factions to grow within the church, people rising up and kind of following party leadership. And uh, also he's uh, slammed them uh, for their understanding of wisdom and their failure to perceive the distinction between worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of the ages, and the wisdom uh, that comes from God. So after having dealt with those internal issues in the first four chapters of this epistle, Paul now turns his attention now to deal with several external matters, which are not simply an in-house family squabble type issue, but uh, are issues that were beginning to, to detract uh, and to tarnish the church's testimony in the community. It was no longer just a matter of in-house stuff, but now it was beginning to have an external impact into the surrounding community. And their witness for Christ was being uh, harmed because of some of the things that were going on within the church. Now, there are a number of issues that Paul raises in chapters 5 and 6. We'll be looking at some of them over the next few weeks, Lord willing. And they do have some things in common. But the particular issue that Paul addresses here at the opening of chapter 5 is an issue that has to do with sexual immorality. Apparently, sexual immorality that is being practiced by uh, someone in the congregation there at Corinth. I want you to understand before we look at this particular problem and the, the one that Paul is addressing, I think it's important to stop and to recognize and to remember that for the Apostle Paul, what he's describing here uh, as being immorality comes from a larger worldview and understanding that in Paul's mind and heart, his worldview, there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. There are certain behaviors which are acceptable for Christ followers, and there are certain behaviors, and in this particular case at the opening of chapter 5, there are certain behaviors that are not acceptable for Christ followers. Now, I know that that sounds a bit old-fashioned to our postmodern ears to think of absolute truths. Hopefully, 
Ben and I were able to to lead you along in that process of of discerning and sorting out that there still exists, though the world would deny it, there still exists absolute truth, that God's Word is truth to us, and, and that as Christ's followers, we are learning. We haven't arrived yet, but as the subtitle of this series of messages suggests, that we're learning to live the Christ life. We're, we're getting real. We're seeking to live an authentic and genuine spirituality. I want you to understand that I am not suggesting that Paul is encouraging, nor am I, us to live a life that is based on the law or a life of legalism. I don't want to encourage in any way or get or have you get the impression that I am focusing on external behaviors as a basis for our salvation. But I do believe this, that when we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and we are called into his eternal family, because we are saved, because we are followers of Christ, that he calls us to a path of holiness and that our lives should be distinct and different from the ways of the world. So that once before we came to Christ, we were not a people. We had not received mercy, but now we are a people, the people of God. And we are a holy priesthood, a chosen possession of God. We are saints, as we've seen already. And we need to begin to resemble, as I said last week, we need to begin to resemble our Father in heaven. We need to begin to look like Him and learn to live this Christ life. So Paul is operating from this position, then, that as Christ followers, there are some behaviors that we should emulate, that we should copy from the life of Christ, and there are some behaviors uh, that, for those who call themselves Christians, that we should seek through the power of the Spirit to avoid. Now, what was the particular problem that Paul was addressing in the church in Corinth? Remember, he's addressing the church. He's not talking to the world outside the church. He's talking to the saints of God. The problem was simply this. It was a problem of incest, and, or at least some form of incest. There was a case in the church at Corinth in which it had been reported to Paul that there was a man in the church who was living in an openly incestuous lifestyle with his father's wife. Now, we make the assumption here that because Paul is explicit in saying that he's living with his father's Wife, that it wasn't his mother. If it had been his mother, I think Paul would have said that explicitly with his mother. Rather, Paul says that he was living in incest with his mother's wife. So, presumably, this was his stepmother. And according to the reports that had come to Paul about the life of the church in Corinth, this man was acting, serving as a crippling disease and was infecting like a cancer, the wholesomeness and the holiness of the entire church. That this cancer of this man's sin was spreading throughout the whole body of Christ in Corinth. And it had now reached a point, the immorality of this man's situation had reached a point where the immorality which was going on within the Corinthian church was even, according to Paul's words, was even surpassing that of pagan Corinth. The Corinthian Christians had managed to shock a city that was characterized by homosexuality and adultery where these things were commonplace. And the city of Corinth began to take notice of the immorality that existed not in their city, 
but existed within the church, within the body of these Christ followers. Now, I think there are several things that we ought to to note about this situation. First of all, that it was an ongoing situation. Paul uses a verb which is in the present tense, that someone, some man has his father's wife. He doesn't say had. It's not something, uh, a sin that took place once uh, a time ago and then was followed by a period of sorrow and repentance, but rather Paul seems to indicate that this was a continuing relationship that was still in progress. Secondly, Paul is addressing an issue here uh, with with, uh, reference to a member in the church. This was someone who clearly and openly identified themselves as a follower of Christ, uh, was an accepted member of the community there in the church in Corinth, but at the same time, while openly confessing Christ as Lord and Savior, was living in an open lifestyle of immorality. The person was claiming loyalty and devotion to Jesus Christ, but was living a sinful lifestyle trying to pass himself off as a follower of Christ while living a life that was more in line with Satan than it was with God. The third thing that Paul addresses here in these few verses of chapter 5 is that the church had become complacent and tolerant of the situation. They had turned their heads and ignored the situation. Paul's complaint is not merely that the sin was taking place, but... Paul was upset and he was reproving the church that there was no outcry from the church itself within the church to have this sinning member removed. There had been, in other words, there had been no exercise of church discipline. The sinful condition was allowed to continue and was accepted as matter of fact by the rest of the church. And Paul says this is nothing but carnal arrogance. Look at what he says in verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul says the, the, the ugly sin has reared its head in Corinth and, and this is the, only the tip of the iceberg. He said the problem that concerns me the most is that This sin has been brought to light, and you're just ignoring it. It's not that you didn't know about it. You know about it, and you're ignoring it. You're turning your head the other way. How could this be? You see, the Corinthians had had rationalized the sin of this brother, this sin that was in their midst. They had rationalized it away by claiming that it was a sign of their liberty. They were using the concept of grace to excuse the existence of sin. The Corinthians had reasoned that Christ had died to pay for their sins, so therefore it's okay to sin a lot. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But Paul says, this is not a sign of your gracious attitude. Instead, this is a sign of your ignorance and your spiritual arrogance. So here in this Corinthian body was this terrible and flagrant sin, this rejection of a simple command of God. Lust had taken over in this guy's life. 
And he was now living in an illicit relationship with his stepmother. And to make matters worse, the church was tolerating it. And Paul knocks them up alongside of their heads. And he says, you guys think you're such hot stuff. You go around puffed up with pride saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. You're bragging about your worldly wisdom. You're bragging about your spiritual attainments later on as we look at this letter. They're bragging about their spiritual gifts. Oh, look at me. I have the spiritual gift of tongues or I have the spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues or I have the spiritual gift of prophecy. Paul says, what are you doing? You're boasting about all of these things, but you're tolerating sin in the midst of the body. There is something very, very wrong with this picture. And Paul says, instead of being puffed up with pride, you should be mourning. You should be down on your faces. You should be prostrate before God, asking God for mercy and grace. So here is this sin and the foolish pride that excused the sin away, the Corinthian Christians had missed the cancer that was eating away at their vitality and was tarnishing their testimony in the community. And in verses 3 through 5, Paul begins to turn from the diagnosis of the problem and he begins to talk about what needs to be done, how to treat the diseased body. And if you look at verses 3 and 5, he, he calls not for unity in the church now, but he calls for division. Up to this point, he's been calling for unity. Now he's calling for division. In verse 3, he says, Even though I'm not physically present with you, I am with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. What's going on there? Paul is imagining himself, even though he's separated by time and space, Paul is imagining himself to be present in Corinth and tells the Christians there, what he has already judged and determined in his own mind and heart with regards to the matter of this sinning brother. And he directs the body to remove the sinning member. Remove it. Excise it. Take a scalpel and remove it out of your midst. Now what Paul is pointing to here is a part of something that's not practiced much in the church these days. That is church discipline. Paul's words here echo the words of Jesus in Matthew 18 when Jesus says, and if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if the sinning brother refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, let this sinning member, let them be to you as a Gentile and as a tax gatherer. What a slam. Jesus is setting forth here in Matthew 18 a process that is good today in the 21st century, a process for church discipline to make sure that the standards of our life together as a corporate body of believers is maintained that there is corporate holiness, not just individual holiness, but corporate holiness. Now, we don't have time to go into all the whys and wherefores this morning, but let me just outline real quickly the steps to follow according to Jesus in Matthew 18. What are you to do when you become aware 
of uh, something in a brother or sister's life. What are you to do? Well, Jesus says, first of all, you're to go to them in private. Would you underscore that word private, in private, in your mind and in your heart? Here's the problem with so many people today. You become aware of something in a fellow believer's life. What do you do? You don't follow Jesus' words and go to them in private and seek uh, to uh, restore them to their walk of faith. Oh, no, we go to Ethel and we go to Mary and we go to Tom and we go to Jim and we tell all of them about what we have against this brother or this sister. And everybody knows about what's going on in that person's life. And our problem with it, everyone knows except the person who needs to be reproved. Jesus says, when you have a problem with a brother or sister, you go to them in private and speak to them. Make sure you go with a humble and gentle spirit. Because, as Paul warns to the Galatians, you you need to be careful that you not also fall. You go with a humble spirit to that individual, and you seek, with the Spirit's help, to talk to them person to person, heart to heart. And it may be, that the Spirit in working in that individual's life will listen to your reproof and that he or she will repent. And at that point, if he or she repents, then church discipline has reached its desired objective. The person has been restored to their walk of faith. But, Jesus says, if the person continues in a rebellious way, refuses to listen to you, then what are you to do? Jesus said you are to take one or two other Christians with you and confront this individual with their sin. If she or he repents of their sin, then you've accomplished your purpose in this matter and the matter is ended. No further uh, action is necessary. However, if the believer, remember, this is believer to believer, if the believer refuses to listen to you and to the others who've come with you, this one or two others that you've taken with you, then what are you to do? The sin is to be taken before the ruling body of the church. And if this sinning member refuses to listen even to the church, God's representatives on earth, if the sinning member refuses to listen even to the church, then she or he is to be removed from the church. Excise it. He is to be considered a pagan and treated as though he were a Gentile and a tax gatherer. But the discipline doesn't end there. Christ continues in the following verses. In Matthew 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, or th- if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. You see, what's happening here is Jesus is giving authority to the church, his body. Notice I didn't say that Jesus gives authority to a pope in Rome. Jesus does not give his authority to the pastor of your local congregation. Instead, Jesus gives his power of attorney. The power of attorney for the Lord gives it to the church, the body of Christ. 
And that's what Paul is describing here when he speaks of them gathering together in their assembly where the the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus are present at the meeting of the church. The meeting of the church is to work, move together as a unified body to expel the member whose sin is infecting the church and bringing the church down and tearing down its witness in the community. And Paul doesn't stop there. Look at what he says in verse 5. He said, hand this man over to Satan. Hand this man over to Satan so that, here's the purpose of doing this, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The church is to excommunicate after having followed this process and the the individual continues on in their sinning ways and will not listen, will not repent, will not step back onto the narrow path of discipleship. The church is to treat them as a tax gatherer and as a pagan and excise them, remove them, excommunicate them from the body of Christ and don't stop there, but hand them over to Satan. How would you like to be in the grips of Satan. Once we were, before God graciously saved us. And Paul says, sometimes, some of us, because of our recalcitrant and hardened hearts, sometimes we need to be given over to Satan, removed from God's mighty hand of protection to give us a spiritual wake-up call. That's what happened to Job. It's not that Job had sinned. He had not. He was not even the victim of church discipline. Yet his body had nevertheless been handed over to Satan. His possessions were destroyed. His family was killed. His body tormented with disease. It was by the hand of Satan that all of those calamities fell upon Job. Why would God allow one of his special children to undergo such torment. Verse 5 states the reason explicitly. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You see, God loves you so very much that he will spare no expense to bring you back to himself. He sometimes, as we said last week, will need to use the chastening rod on us to get our attention, to call us back to a state of spiritual alertness and awakeness. Paul says, hand this man over to Satan so that he might be destroyed and he might be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, I know that to our modern ears, this sounds rather extreme. But it's what Paul is calling the church to do. Don't ignore the sin. Why? Because to to ignore the sin will lead toward this person's destruction. Further, to ignore the sin will pull the rest of the body down. And to ignore the sin will affect your testimony out on the streets of the city. 
This is why, as I did last week when we received new members into our fellowship, I always exhort our new members and all of us to remember that we are a representative of Jesus Christ and of this local body of believers to the community around us. And we need to be walking humbly before our God and walking in the ways of holiness. You see, the problem is we live in a very individually oriented society where we think, hey, my sin is my sin. It should not bother you. But the reality is this. My sin pulls you down. Your sin pulls us down. And so there should be such love and such commitment to walk in the ways of holiness. We should, when we begin to deviate from the goal to be like Christ, we should be concerned about that brother or sister. When we begin to deviate from the goal of holiness and Christ-likeness and begin to fall uh, into sin, God has told us that we need to do something drastic to get people's eyes open. He gives people, He gives the church the authority to call the wandering sinner back. And if it doesn't work, God gives His people the authority to deliver the wandering soul into the power of Satan. You think, well, couldn't God just stand us in a corner and time out for a while? But, my friends, God takes sin very, very seriously because He is an altogether holy God. And because God takes sin seriously, so should we. Now notice the ultimate goal of this form of church discipline is restoration. To be saved, to be restored, to be brought back under the narrow path of discipleship. The intent is not punitive, the intent is restorative. Now please understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying here. He's not saying that sinful people have no place in the church. Far from it. Paul himself described himself as the chief of sinners. In Romans 6, 7, and 8, he talks about that ongoing struggle in his heart uh, where he has no illusions about his own human heart and carnal flesh, especially his own. Paul understands that the church is a place for forgiven sinners. He knows that the only kind of person that can be found in the church is a sinful person, and that is precisely the point here. Paul has all sorts of room in the church for Christians who recognize their sin and their sinfulness. But Paul also wants to remind us that as saints, we have been called to holy living. That is our goal. And the thing that concerns me today in the church of Jesus Christ is that we've gotten so close to the world in the way we live that there are in many ways no clear distinction between the world and the church. And one of the priorities, if we're really serious about learning to live the Christ life, 
one of the priorities of our life should be to be more like Jesus. A.B. Simpson said this so well in the refrain of one of his hymns, I long, oh I long to be holy, conformed to his will and his word. I want to be gentle and Christ-like. I want to be just like my Lord. As I close this morning, I would ask you, is that your desire? Do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want our church to be more Christ-like? If so, we need to take sin seriously. We need to take that, that attitude of spiritual rebellion, that, that proneness towards sinning that is part of all of us, And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to die to self and the flesh, and we need to be, through the sanctifying power and grace of God, to become more like Jesus. That's the goal of our life together, individually and corporately. And that's why I stand up here week after week, pounding the desk and pouring my heart out and acting like a fool. Because I believe that's what God is calling us as a church to be. A holy people. Special possession of God. And we, not only in our own lives, but in our church together, we need to take sin seriously. So much so, that if it gets out of control, it needs to be nipped in the bud immediately. With the instruction of Scripture, of course. But it needs to be dealt with immediately. It needs to be removed. It needs to be excised. So that we can truly be the saints of God. Let us never forget that Christ died. In a moment we will hold these emblems of bread and wine in our hands. Let us never forget that Christ purchased our redemption through His shed blood and His broken body on the cross. And his broken body and his shed blood not only redeemed, redeems us, but gives us the power to live a holy life that is pleasing to God. It is by the same power of the cross that you and I are made holy. It's not of us. It's not our efforts. It's not our work. It's something that comes through faith in Christ. May we not be guilty of that which the Corinthian church was guilty. May we be a pure and a holy church. A bride that's fitting for Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, these words are falling hard on our ears and our hearts today. We are reminded just how seriously you take sin and that your call to your followers is to be holy even as you are holy. So I pray, O oh God, that in this moment, that as your people, we would humbly bow our hearts before you and ask, Lord, that you would search our hearts, try us in our inmost being, see if there be any wicked way in us. Create in us clean hearts, O oh God. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that 
we will remember that as saints of God, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, that you've called us to live holy lives such that our testimony would not be harmed, our witness would not be damaged within the community, but that others, when others in our community look at us, they will see that there is something extraordinarily different about these people called Christ followers. May it be so in our fellowship today, we pray. Amen.